the Royal Australian Air Force in person, 1921 to 2021. Ad Astra Aviator. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McRae, OAM. Women have served in the Australian Armed Forces since 1899. In the late 1970s and early 1980s, women were integrated into the services but not allowed to apply for combat roles until 2013. As far as the Australian Air Force is concerned, from 1940, women served in two different streams. One stream was the RAAF Nursing Service, with the nurses serving in most theatres of war, and the other stream was the Women's Auxiliary Australian Air Force, which became the Women's Royal Australian Air Force, which from 1977 was integrated into the mainstream Australian Air Force. During World War II, women of the RAAF Nursing Service and the WAAAF played a strong and admirable role in the defence of Australia. Australia's first female Air Force pilots graduated in 1988. Women have served in many theatres of war with distinction and with merit. Let me introduce some memories of Sister Joan Lautert, 2nd Medical Air Evacuation Unit of the RAAF. Sadly, she passed away on the 11th of September in 2018. Sister Joan's voice is here read by Angela Pike, a young Anzac ambassador who has walked the Kokoda Trail. Hello, I'm Sister Joan. I did my nursing training at the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne from early 1940 to 1943. I can remember saying to my mother in 1942, about halfway through the training, gee I hope the war lasts long enough for me to join the Royal Australian Air Force Nursing Service. It was most interesting meeting sisters from all the other states in Australia and discussing different methods, broadening our horizons, and realising that the actual procedures we were taught at the Alfred Hospital were not necessarily the only way to do things. Eventually, in full uniform, we were supposedly having a practice for the pass-out parade when one girl's hat blew off and she broke ranks and chased it. The sergeant was screaming at her and she was crying out, but it's new, it's new, and we were all laughing. We didn't have the pass-out parade after that. Instead, we sat in a hall while the Director of Medical Services spoke to us on Air Force etiquette, which appealed to us much more. Miss Lang, the Matron-in-Chief, she also gave us a pep talk. She was a great one for discipline, high standards and strict rules. For example, in the Royal Australian Air Force Nursing Service, we were allowed one sherry at a party, two if pressed. When we finished our course, I was posted to Sydney to a large military hospital with a thousand beds. I was in three wards. One skin ward was full of patients with tropical ulcers, malaria, scrub typhus and other tropical diseases. A psychiatric ward, which was called battle fatigue. It was very sad, all the young lads who couldn't cope with service life. An officer's ward with several aircraft accident cases. They were badly burned and crippled. 
and I was also in the operating theatre. I had several months in Sydney. Then the Royal Australian Air Force Nursing Service called for volunteers to form an air evacuation unit after the Japanese had sunk two hospital ships. A hundred sisters volunteered and 25 were accepted. The RAAF board then formed the Medical Air Evacuation Transport Unit. In the Pacific, the fighting in the islands in New Guinea was really heavy. Casualties going to Port Moresby every day. So, 25 sisters and 25 medical orderlies were posted to a medical training centre in Melbourne. There we had three weeks intensive training. Training included physical training, lectures on jungle and ocean survival, aviation and tropical medicine. There were pressure chamber tests as well to check the ability to maintain stable when required to fly at high altitudes during evacuation of patients. Then there was an examination at the end of the course. One of the questions was, what do you do if a plane ditches in the sea? The answer, the dinghy is lowered and sister steps out to organize where the patients are to sit. A variety of aircraft were used for evacuations, liberators and Catalinas, mainly for walking wounded, but the most reliable were the wonderful C-47s. The aircraft were fitted with metal brackets, holding 12 stretchers on each side in stacks, plus one or two walking wounded, one sister, one orderly, and three aircrew. Sisters were responsible for loading the aircraft from the ambulances, organizing each patient according to his condition. Serious cases on the lower bunks, fractures on the second layer. This was to tie the limbs to the upper bunks. And those not so serious were on the upper bunks. Battle fatigue boys on the lower stretches as well. They were all fairly heavily sedated. For those of us who were stationed in Marotai, which is a thousand miles north of Darwin and a thousand miles east of Singapore. A typical working day for an air evacuation sister began at 3 a.m. Breakfast at 3.30, as flights over New Guinea had to be before the heat of the day. Conditions over New Guinea were quite difficult because of the terrain and the quick build-up of clouds. We flew over the sea whenever possible. It was four or five hours to Biak, on the north coast of New Guinea, or to Maruke, on the south coast of New Guinea. Overnight in Biak, if the clouds came down early, or on to Maruke, then on to Townsville, Australia, where number three Aeravac continued on to the other capital cities. Some of the girls on number one Aeravac were based in New Guinea, all of us bringing out battle casualties. The boys were all tired, they were ill and weary. Most of the trips were uneventful. On one trip that I did from Marotai to Ambon and on to Darwin, I had a very ill lad on board. I asked another sister on Ambon if she had any spare oxygen. She did, because she only had walking wounded and was not using her oxygen, so we swapped cylinders. I had little left in mine. I asked the radio operator on to Darwin to meet us with oxygen. When I got to Darwin, the ambulance driver hadn't received the message, so I sent my orderly to the hospital with my cylinder and the patient and asked him to bring back my cylinder. Then I went to the office at the airport and asked, didn't you get my message? And they said no. Somebody said, who's complaining out there? It's a sister, Lutit. Oh, we had a brigadier Lutit here this morning. He was complaining too. No transport to meet him. And I said, that must be my father. Can I get in touch with him? They rang through when the message came back that he was in a meeting with General Herring and he did not want to be disturbed. So I said, that's all right. I'm flying down to Melbourne tonight at 9.30. Will you please give him the message? Then, at nine o'clock, who should arrive but General Herring, 
my father and a very young adjutant to see us off, which was very pleasant. My father said, Give my love to the old lady, meaning my mother. I said, She's not as old as you. The adjutant said, You shouldn't be talking to him like that. And I said, I'm the favourite daughter and I can do no wrong. And he said, You're lucky. Air evacuation continued on to Borneo as the Japanese were pushed back. On August 15, the bomb was dropped and there was a sudden end to the war. For the Flying Sisters, the priority suddenly changed. The evacuation of prisoners of war. 14,300 Australians were taken prisoner. Half were already dead. Several Flying Sisters were based in Singapore and flew prisoners of war to Borneo and then on to Marotai to the Army Base Hospital and then later to Darwin. We flew non-stop for 28 days. 250,000 prisoners, servicemen and civilians were evacuated. The Flying Sisters in Borneo flew 1,000 stretcher cases from West Coast Borneo, Kuching, two hours to Laborn. Several short trips included one where they evacuated 20 English and Dutch nuns who were in a very bad way. On my first trip, I had 48 patients. I said we usually only carried 27. Some prisoners of war were only 25 kilos. They were walking skeletons. It was a great thrill when they found 27 army nurses who had been prisoner for three and a half years. Another trip was with 40 West Australian prisoners of war. I flew them to Perth on my 23rd birthday. Darwin to Perth was 10 hours. I was making sandwiches with some asparagus, which the Red Cross used to give to us. I opened the tin and poured the asparagus water down a small hole near the door. Somebody landed on my back and I thought he was going to push me out. He said, don't waste that. I don't know which was worse, the embarrassment or the fright. Even now when I open a tin of asparagus, I can't tip it out. I drink it. It was wonderful seeing all the friends and relations of the 40 Western Australian prisoners of war and the welcome they received. It was a great birthday. On our return trips back to base, we had number one priority and could board any plane going north. We flew with cargo, mail, veggies and the troops. There were no seats. We sat on our first aid boxes. Troops sat on their kit bags. When you got back, you put your name at the bottom of the list and flew out again as planes became available. We were still flying six months after the war was over. I remember, after turning to Marotai, it was Christmas Eve, 1945, and the war was well and truly over. Three or four RAAF sisters had been invited to a party at a nearby naval station. On arrival, we discovered there were several officers who we knew. They told us their ship carried prisoners of war, but they were unfortunately were delayed and would not make it home for Christmas. The captain said, I am sailing a very sad ship. I was sad as well, and I looked out into the bay. The ship was in darkness. My friend Audrey Gilbert and I asked permission from the CO to go with the Scotch lieutenant out in the crash boat to the ship. As we approached, the lieutenant hailed the ship. I have a couple of flying sisters here to wish you a happy Christmas. Gradually, a few lights came on and a few people appeared on the deck. We began to sing Christmas carols and hymns. The Scot had a beautiful voice. It was a clear, moonlit, tropical night and the sound carried easily over the calm water. Gradually, lights came on all over the ship and the decks were full of people. Soon, hesitantly, they started to join in and after a short time, the ship and we were all singing beautiful carols. 
It was a Christmas I shall never forget. The army sisters had a much harder time than us. They lost 56 nurses. They died in prisoners of war camps. They were shot at on boats, drowned. And 22 were massacred on a beach. 11 died on a hospital ship off the coast of Australia. When we were brought back to the mainland, we were told that our career had been one of adventure, daring, endeavor, and hard work, but no glamor. No glamor at all. No glamour at all. Setting off early a.m. on dangerous flights in awful weather. I think we all coped most of the time. We were all proud to be members of the RAAF nursing service, Flying Sisters Unit. Then, when we were demobilised, after years of having all accommodation, meals and clothes provided, and at do as you were told, it was quite a shock to be told, well, you can go now. I think it was harder on the men than the women. I was lucky. The government of the day formed TAA, and they wanted air crew and hostesses. So, some of us just changed uniforms. What a lovely job. Newly painted planes, a seat for everyone, safety belts, only 10 passengers on a flight, three hours between states, overnight rest, and back the next day. We gave out tea and biscuits, barley sugar and magazines, and we chatted. It was quite fascinating watching a new airline being formed. I went to New Zealand for a holiday, and there I met Kelvin Patterson. I found a good mate in New Zealand. We have four children, three of whom live in Australia. I've had 51 happy years in Wanganui with lots of friends. Thank God for the RAAF. Globally, the RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day, contributing to coalition operations, peacekeeping and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. It has a history of endeavour and sacrifice, which is one in a place in the hearts of all Australians and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies. The RAAF will never tarnish its record. It carries on in the proud tradition of Per Adua Ad Astra. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. Produced by Air Force Association New South Wales, which is a registered charity that focuses on the well-being of Air Force veterans and their families. If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.